Welcome back. The topic for this multi-part series is consumer debt. That is a broad category of this series, and today I will be talking about Fight Club and culture since the 1980s. You're listening to Looking Forward with Michael Bazan, where we take a hard look at the past as well as the present in an effort to construct an amazing future. Your host is Michael Bazan. Enjoy the show. Consumer debt is something that is attributable to many factors, such as our embracing of consumerism as a society, the rising cost of living, the stagnation of wages, planned obsolescence, the rising cost of education combined with its declining value, predatory credit practices with extreme interest rates, and the whole credit system as a whole that perpetuates poverty by raking you on your credit worthiness. I warn you now that there are spoilers ahead. If you haven't seen David Fincher's Fight Club at this point in time, you really have no excuse. It came out 21 years ago. You've had some time. If you have seen it, that is something you and I share, having had the experience of seeing this amazing film. I saw it in the theater in good old 1999. It was perfect for the time and absolutely still applies today. Two days later, I was compelled to see it again. I absolutely dig it. So a little bit about the film in general. Garen Pernia, in an Esquire article titled Why Fight Club Matters More Than Ever, states that most of Fight Club comes off as a masculine, caustic satire, but the ideas in the movie metastasize into real-life 21st century America. At the end of 1999, we were two years away from 9-11 and eight years away from the immobilizing global financial crisis that would eventually birth Occupy Wall Street. Wikipedia takes some comparisons further back by claiming that the character is a 1990s inverse of the graduate archetype, a guy who does not have a world of possibilities in front of him. He has no possibilities. He literally cannot imagine a way to change his life. He is confused and angry. Does that sound familiar to anyone out there? Far left, far right, millennial, or anyone simply alive and paying attention? Does that sound familiar? Anyway, to reiterate and continue, it says, A guy who does not have a world of possibilities in front of him. He has no possibilities. He literally cannot imagine a way to change his life. He is confused and angry. So he responds to his environment by creating Tyler Durden, a Nietzschean ubermensch in his mind. Fight Club also parallels the 1955 film Rebel Without a Cause. Both probe the frustrations of the people in the system. The characters having undergone societal emasculation are reduced to a generation of spectators. A culture of advertising defines society's external signifiers of happiness causing an unnecessary chase for material goods that replace the more essential pursuit of spiritual happiness. It's a pretty amazing film, and although it explores materialism, consumerism, and the angst that we all feel being cogs in a greedy system, the main reason I'm addressing the film in this series is because of the film's ending. So the movie ends with Project Mayhem achieving one of its ultimate goals. We see the buildings that house the servers and files with everyone's credit scores and records of debt crashed to the ground as Where Is My Mind by the Pixie plays us out. It is simply beautiful. The point being that if 
everyone was on the same playing field with credit, then there really would be equality. Preceding the final scene before the narrator, played by Edward Norton, gets rid of his Nietzschean ubermensch alter ego Tyler Durden, Tyler Durden says, Look what we've accomplished, as he checks his watch. 30 seconds, he says as he looks out the window. Out these windows we will view the economic collapse. One step closer to global equilibrium. Now, equilibrium is an interesting thing. It's a state of rest or balance due to the equal action of imposing forces. Essentially, they leveled the playing field. For the last 70 years, we've been fed the belief that consumerism, shopping, and the economy are not only the most important things in the world, but that it is literally your patriotic duty to spend, spend, spend. We have been force-fed this construct by the media, politicians, our parents, and the educational system, all prodding us today and beforehand to go out and die for the economy. And to be clear about the media, I'm not talking about the current political trend of labeling any news that does not support one's views as fake news. That is simply a ruse taken right out of the fascist dictator's handbook to deem media the enemy of the state and to get this administration's base to watch and listen to only the news and media that supports their agenda. It is really unfortunate that so many people are not students of history because this fake news facade would be obvious and not be able to fool and control as many people as it does. I want to talk more about the media as it's acted since the 1950s. The media is owned and controlled by very few people. Its job at best is to be the fourth estate, keeping the branches of government in check. And it does do that to an extent. I mean, imagine how our government would run wild without it. I mean, they still do, but arguably to a lesser extent than they would if there was zero coverage of their actions. We would be infinitely less informed without it. But don't get me wrong, I'm not its biggest fan. I see the necessity for the media, and I value the bravery of many journalists that put their lives in dangers around the world to report the news. But like any other power, the media is not inherently good or bad. It's used for both. But here's one way it has functioned over the last 70 years. It has bombarded us with consumeristic ideology that the ruling class, both Republican and Democrat, adore while promoting the status quo. We are bombarded with the all-encompassing importance of the economy, GDP, and all the other terms that are meant to inspire the masses to be good little consumers. The new car, your 20th pair of badass tennies, jays, squeaks, or my favorite feet whips, or furniture, health products, and on and on and on. It is your duty to buy stuff. So right alongside the media vomiting our patriotic duty to spend money we have the rise of credit cards and credit agencies to deem if you are worthy. While credit is a useful tool and not evil in and of itself, there's a definite dark side as to how it is meted out. To reiterate, I believe that no power or tool is inherently good or bad. It is how it is wielded, used, or abused that gives it a label in that regard. But before we talk about credit, we need to talk a bit more about the media. In Bernie Sanders' Our Revolution, he states that, in 1983, the largest 50 corporations controlled 90% of the media. That's a high level of concentration. But today, as a result of massive mergers and takeovers, six corporations control 90% of what we see, hear, and read. He goes on to say that this is a real threat to our democracy. 
Those six corporations, by the way, are Comcast, News Corp, Disney, Viacom, Time Warner, and CBS. In a recent article in Forbes magazine discussing media ownership, the headline appropriately read, These 15 billionaires own America's news media companies. While I do not share Bernie's belief, at least in our current economic system, which I'd like to move past, but in our current economic system, I do not share his belief that there should be no billionaires, due to that being just an arbitrary number, and that there shouldn't be a cap on financial success given our current system. I do believe that it is unlikely that many, if any, billionaires made it to where they are without using the infrastructure that we all built and or taking advantage of huge pools of employees with low wages. Beyond that, many others pillaged our country's natural resources and the natural resources around the world and generally caused the destruction of communities and ecosystems. But if someone can become a billionaire without paying their employees starvation wages or destroying communities and ecosystems, then be a billionaire. It's an arbitrary number. That is until we transition, of course, to a better system such as resource-based economy. But even I am somewhat conditioned to support the current systems. It's difficult to escape completely, so the number being arbitrary makes me resist the claim that there should be no billionaires, because the same could have been said about millionaires at one point, and in the future, if we don't change our ways, it'll be said about trillionaires. Now, wrap your head around that. Now, don't get me wrong, the punk in me still says, eat the fucking rich. I am not big fans. So, Back to the media, though. Six companies own 90% of the media we consume, and that happened in the last 40 years as so many other detrimental things. This and many other reasons are why I focus so heavily on the last 40 years. Many people think that we need to undo the last three and a half years of the Trump's presidency, but our task is much more arduous than that. I believe that we need to undo the last 40 years of detrimental policies and systems embedded in our culture by Democrats, Republicans, the media, our elders, and our schools. In that time, just about every industry has merged into something along the lines of the media industry mentioned earlier. Investopedia lists the following industries as being overshadowed by oligopolies, which means an industry controlled by very few people. So cable television services, entertainment, music, and film, mass media, those are all the media, Airlines, definitely. Pharmaceuticals. And let me pause here to say that this is why it is so important to have Medicare for All, so that we are actually have bargaining power against this particular oligopoly. And believe me, cutting out the middlemen and gaining bargaining power does not translate into a higher cost. And if you listen to episode three titled, Our Country is More Divided Than Ever, Economic Theory is One of the Main Culprits, you know that paying for such a program does not have to rely on taxes equaling the expenditure. And all the times this program's costs were discussed, most people failed to mention the exorbitant cost of our current system, and of course its failure to provide for all those that are within our border. So back to the list though. Computers and software, cellular phone services, smartphone and computer operating systems, aluminum and steel, oil and gas, automobiles. Now, while I do not debate that those industries fit the description, I did find it convenient and interesting that the banking industry was absent from this list. It most certainly belongs on the list as it is merged and consolidated 
to four main companies, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, controlling 45% of the market. So while that is not a vast majority like the 90% of the media that six companies control, it is still quite vast, dangerous, and continuing to grow. But back to the media. Sanders goes on to say, No sane person denies that the media plays an enormously important role in shaping public consciousness and determining political outcome. The current media situation in America where a handful of giant corporations controls the flow of information is a very serious threat to our democracy. The very first amendment to our constitution guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of the press, the right of the people to express their points of view from the rooftops to allow themselves to be heard. That is something I passionately believe in because it is the essence of democracy. Unfortunately, as A.J. Liebling wrote back in 1960, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one, and the people who own the press, radio and television stations, and book publishing and movie companies are becoming fewer and fewer with more and more power. This is a crisis that can be no longer ignored. So that was back in 1960. And that scenario has only become more extreme and dangerous. To his own detriment, Bernie's criticism guaranteed that he would get very little airplay during his 2016 and 2020 campaign, and that when he did, he would be cast in a bad light. That did not change in 2016 until his contender status was undeniable. But the slight coverage he received paled in comparison to Clinton's and definitely to Trump's expertise at controlling the news cycle. For all the vitriol that from Trump towards the media, their constant coverage of him was a major factor along with an archaic electoral process in his ascendancy to the presidency. Now, the media has a need for stability and maintaining the status quo, and it did not come into existence when Trump's presidency did. They just have an agenda of pushing consumerism, stability, and status quo so that they stay in the position of power. So a conflict with such an emotionally infantile president was somewhat inevitable, even though it was the media itself that facilitated his rise. On a side note, who remembers when there were no commercials before movies at the theater? It really pissed me off when that changed. At first, I would purposely be late to miss the commercials because I I don't like being sold to. But then getting a good seat became an issue, and I I admittedly acquiesced. But I long for the days that there were only movie trailers before the film. Right now, though, I long for the days when we could even see a movie in a theater. So as I mentioned in the past episode, I grew up in the 80s in the suburbs, which seemed to me the epitome of greed and materialism. It wasn't Wall Street, but it was a society that those were their idols. I was born in 1971 while the Vietnam War was coming to an end, but my formative years, so to speak, were in the last part of the 70s and definitely the 80s. TV-wise, on an odd note, I uh, grew up with the Dukes of Hazzard to harken back to my episode about Confederate monuments. I loved the show personally, definitely at the time. Now that I'm older and I know that what the Confederate flag stands for and that the car itself was named after Robert E. Lee, I'm not given clarity. It's just strange. Here's an odd tidbit of information. In a Ranker article, the best shows of the 1980s, ranked by people up and down voting, the Dukes of Hazard comes in second. So I guess I was not the only one who liked the show. It's odd that one thing I liked about it was the common man fighting the rich asshole. But that is wrapped in the Confederacy, which has come to mean something else is 
confusing. And what's even more confusing is that many in the South and around the country that probably share a fondness for that show now use their vote to vote for the rich asshole. That's confusing. Anyway, my goal was to discuss the culture of the late 70s and 80s that propagated materialism, consumerism, and our worshiping of the almighty dollar in the economy. So we had Dallas, about a feuding Texan family whose primary wealth came from oil. Dynasty, which was also about feuding wealthy families. Uh, Knott's Landing and Falcon Crest. We had Robin Leach's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And in 1981, a TV movie called Rona Barrett looks at today's super rich came out. Essentially, gossip columnist Rona Barrett interviewed Donald Trump. And yes, the S in super rich is a dollar sign. You guessed it. So my generation and older generations were introduced to this douchebag in the 80s, if not before. He was on the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but not until the 90s. So during the end of the last century, he was on the Howard Stern Show, Late Night with David Letterman, Charlie Rose, and others. He did cameos on the Roseanne Show, All My Children, Home Alone 2, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Little Rascals, The Drew Carey Show, Spin City, Sex in the City, and many others. My point being that many of us were well aware of this guy before The Apprentice, where a fake set was built to appear as Trump's offices. In 1987, Trump released a full-page ad in multiple newspapers criticizing the foreign policy of the United States of America. Most people take to the streets, vote, and organize when they want to elicit change in America because most people did not inherit a fortune. It's reported that he spent nearly 100000 on that ad to take a jab at Reagan's foreign policy. In today's money, that's about $226,000. Most of us do not have that at our disposal, so a lot of us have asked conservatives, what is the right way to protest? And now we know, newspaper ads, otherwise you get tear gas and rubber bullets straight from this guy. So the 80s were a time of yuppies and preppies and punks who hated yuppies and preppies. There were all types of music fighting the status quo from punk bands from around the world like Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, Bad Religion, Suicidal Tendencies, DOA, Sex Pistols, and The Subhumans, and others that are not punk like Elvis Costello, Tom Waits, Bruce Springsteen, some of those beginning in the late 70s. We also had social commentary from Public Enemy, NWA, Beastie Boys, and Ice-T. We had rockers like Guns N' Roses, Twisted Sister, Jane's Addiction, Megadeth, and Soundgarden. Then further in time, we got Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, Marilyn Manson, System of a Down, and Tool. I think Soundgarden would probably be in that group, although they did start pretty early. We also got bands like Ween and Butthole Surfers, They Might Be Giants, Radiohead, Depeche Mode, The Flaming Lips, Bjork, The Smiths, and The Pixies. We also heard the rise of one of my favorite genres, Industrial with Ministry, Skinny Puppy, KMFDM, Frontline Assembly, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, White Zombie, Nitzer Ebb, Nine Inch Nails, and the Skatenicks. I mention this because it was a great time as well. While the media and other politicians were selling us greed and the status quo, there were other movements forming, in music and otherwise. I think somewhere along the way we lost the edge. We lost the angst. Now it seems like every song is about partying and getting richer. I know that's not the case, but that's what it seems to be most popular. It's like the yuppies won. It's like money is our national religion. I mean, look at who we revere. Look who's in the White House. Then we also had films like Scarface, Becoming a Violent Horatio Alger, 
for the 80s and beyond. For those who are unfamiliar with this writer from the late 1800s, here's a brief intro from Wikipedia. Horatio Alger Jr. was an American writer of young adult novels about impoverished boys and their rise from humble beginnings to lives of middle-class security and comfort through hard work, determination, courage, and honesty. His writings were characterized by the rags-to-riches narrative, which had a formative effect on the United States during the Gilded Age. This, along with the frontier myth that I mentioned in episode one, has been reiterated in our films, literature, and politics throughout our lifetime. On a sickening side note, he was a pastor, a pastor, not a pastor, pastor, at the First Unitarian Church and Society of Brewster, Massachusetts. There he sexually molested boys. It says, Wikipedia adds, Alger denied nothing, admitting he had been imprudent, considered his association with the church dissolved, and left town. The officials were satisfied and decided no further action would be taken. This is beyond sickening and far too calming. Both the sickening actions and the lack of action being taken by the church, but let's get back to the topic at hand. Now, I believe that we as individuals have the ability to become whatever we dream. I believe in hard work, study, determination, visualization, creating one's world and future. That is literally the impetus and the mission of looking forward. I even believe in pulling oneself up by the bootstraps. And believe me, I've done that more times than I can count in my lifetime. I'm trying to do that right now, in fact. The thing is, though, that conservatives and moderates will use this belief to institute policies and systems that impede individual freedom to pursue happiness and success while enriching those who have already been enriched. I'm going to share a little brainstorm with you, especially since this show's stated purpose is ultimately to be solution-based. Over the course of last five years, we have heard calls from progressive politicians to cancel student debt. Calls for that existed long before, but this is when we heard the first major politician utter those words. First is Bernie, then others joined in on this election cycle. And here are some of my thoughts. First is that the whole credit system is predatory, so they lose out on some projected profit after they've pillaged so many, who cares? That's my first thought. I mean, to share a personal anecdote on my student loan, I'm paying an extra $10,000 that I never borrowed, essentially a long story short because of one late payment during the recession. Oh, which recession? Good question, since they seem to occur about every 10 years now. This was the Great Recession of 2008. What a euphemistic name for it. Anyway, the business model for the banking and credit industry is predatory, exclusionary, and has never a never-ending hunger for new prey. So you better believe during an economic downturn, all those character traits are turned up, even if they are complicit in causing the economic downturn in the first place. One thing that most people don't realize is that Bernie's call to cancel our student and medical debt is the seemingly logical conclusion he came to after the banks were bailed out. That's a huge piece of it that's rarely mentioned, but it's in his book. Many many banks were given free money And on top of that, they were giving massive loans at less than 1%. All this while the general public lost income, jobs, value on savings and investments, and were generally left to twist in the wind 
and pull themselves up by their bootstraps once again. So for all people left and right, here's my compromise solution concerning all consumer debt. But actually, let me further preface this by saying that even if we keep capitalism, or more accurately, our mixed economy, we need to really ask ourselves about a few industries. For industries such as banking, credit, pharma, and prisons and detention centers, removing the profit motive, I believe, is imperative. All these industries' profit motive is based on misery. It's very different from the manufacture of goods or the operation of a restaurant or a company of electricians or plumbers. The aforementioned industries remaining profit-based is absolutely detrimental to the world and definitely to our country. For instance, I ask you this, how much do you think we spend and how many people are employed for the pure purpose of restricting resources from those who most need them? Think about it. It's quite a bit. And doesn't that right there drive up the cost of goods, so to speak, if said business has to support this whole system that runs your credit report, analyzes it to see if you're a worthy human, and you know, and essentially those who need money the least score the lowest interest rates. That is 100% a system that perpetuates poverty and income inequality. So here's my solution on consumer debt. And keep in mind, these businesses feed off consumer debt and they will fight tooth and nail against anything that would abolish it. It is not an issue that the powers that be want solved. Like so many other things, it never was about our inability to solve this issue. And in this case, it's not even about the lack of will. It is about consumer debt being a necessary piece in the business model and profit plan for banks and credit issuers. And why do we need this industry, at least in its present predatory form? So here's my proposed solution that doesn't give anything away for free, as the conservatives like to deem anything that would be beneficial to the many instead of the few. Step one, bring all interest rates to individuals and families to 1%. This would be retroactive. For future loans, this will mean that the interest rate will not rise above 1%, although any entity is allowed to administer loans at any amount below 1%, which is what the banks were able to get from our government. For all pre-existing loans, this means that after the recalculation of the pre-existing loan, at a 1% interest rate historically, once total payments up to the up to this date of being calculated would be compared to the total amount one would have paid in order to pay off a specific loan at 1% for the lifetime of the loan while paying the minimum amount due. Then the total payments to date would be subtracted from the recalculated total. If the answer is a positive number, then that is the remaining balance due at which point the borrower would have the option of paying the full balance or paying it off in agreed-upon time frame. If the answer is a negative number, the loan shall be considered paid in full, and the resulting number shall be transferred back to the borrower, achieving equilibrium. Now, of course, there will be a few cons with this situation. 
One is projected profits and returns of creditors would have been artificially high. Creditors' value, either on the stock market or otherwise, would fall. There would be job loss at creditor entities due to the lack of need of departments who are solely dedicated to assessing credit worthiness. Any financial instrument that incorporates a partial ownership or investment in a creditor entity would lose value. This would result in loss of wealth for any holder of the aforementioned financial instrument, the magnitude of which would be dependent on the level of existing investment in a creditor entity. A large number of people's portfolios would lose some value. So that's just being objective. There would be those cons. Now the pros, though, outweigh the cons, in my opinion. This would, over a short period of time, either eliminate consumer debt or, at the very least, keep it so low that it would not inhibit the forward progress of individuals, families, and communities as it presently does. Our population would become better educated due to the increased accessibility and affordability. A more balanced playing field would be a positive result. Right now, those who make it to prosperity are the exceptions. This would help the quantity of people who make it to prosperity the rule, thereby benefiting a much greater percentage of our population. And for the economist, economy-wise, this would increase the money supply to the portion of the population with a high propensity to spend. Right now, we give most of the money to the portion of the population with a high propensity to save. And that doesn't help the economy at all. It doesn't make any sense. So, so economy-wise, this would increase the money supply to the portion of the population with a high propensity to spend, not only at a given time, but going forward. As a people, we would also have the ability to solve more of, if not all, of society's plights. This would could also potentially lead to less stress, depression, and hopelessness, and ideally towards more accomplishment, personal growth, happiness, and prosperity. Now, these are industries that don't deserve to survive. It, they're purely predatory, detrimental to society, and the credit industry and banks should be purely services without the aggressive and detrimental product motive, in my opinion. That is my proposed solution. Essentially giving individuals the ability to access credit at the rates that the biggest industry get to do so on a regular basis. Thanks for listening to today's episode. In the next episode, I will discuss entrepreneurship, planned obsolescence, Davos, and China. While you're here, make sure you download the episodes even if you cannot listen to them right now. Also, if you like what you hear, please support the show by leaving a review, following on social media, or contributing to Looking Forward's Patreon. All the best to everyone out there. Thanks for listening and going on this journey. If you were inspired to create an amazing future, leave us a five-star review, share with your friends, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.